0: Welcome to the archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. What animals think and how their thoughts might be understood is the topic of this archive edition of Radio Curious. A certain amount of insight into this curious question may be obtained from the book Animals in Translation, Using the Mysteries of Autism to Decode Animal Behavior by Professor Temple Grandin. Grandin, born in 1947, was diagnosed with autism at the age of two years and did not begin to speak until she was four years old. She earned a master's degree and a PhD in animal science, and is now a professor of animal science at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. In Animals in Translation, Grandin explores the world of animals, their pain, fear, aggression, relationships, and communication. She believes that autistic people at times think the way animals think, putting them in a strong position to translate animal talk. When I spoke with Professor Grandin from her office in Fort Collins, Colorado, in March 2006, we began our conversation when I asked her to define autism.
1: Autism is a neurological one. Um Developmental disorder. The child's born with about half of uh, children with autism uh, never become verbal and remain very handicapped. And then you have a whole big range that goes all the way from genius scientists like Einstein to um, somebody that's a whole lot, uh, you know, lower functioning. Uh, when I was uh, two and a half years old, I was no speech, uh, screaming, constant tantrums, uh, no eye contact. Used to sit and just spin a little brass thing on the bed for hours and hours. Just to, kind of. like tune out the world, loud sounds hurt my ears, and I was very lucky to get very good um, educational intervention and had teachers that worked with me for hours keeping me engaged. It's, you know, if you think a young child has autism, the worst thing you could do with an autistic two or three-year-old is let them watch TV all day. You've got to get them into a good program where a good teacher's working with them.
0: What was it in your experience that brought you to where you are now as an associate professor of animal science?
1: Well, it's a whole lot of different things. I had some excellent teachers. When I was in high school, I was a goof-around student that got constantly teased. You know, I just didn't want to study. I didn't see any reason to study. And then Mr. Carlock, my science teacher, got me interested because the only refuges I had away from teasing were with other students that had shared interests in science projects, electronics projects, and riding horses. Because when I did those activities, uh, nobody was teasing me. And mentor teachers in high school and college can be really, really critical in, in success.
0: Was it riding horses that brought you to the animal world?
1: Well, that was one of the things. And the other thing that got me interested in animals was when my mother got remarried, that brought a, a, a relative into the family that had a ranch, and I went out there in the summer and visited, and I watched cattle going through the squeeze chute for their vaccinations, and, of course, I got fascinated with that. And might wonder why did I get fascinated with that. When puberty hit, I had horrible anxiety attacks, horrible panic attacks, just nonstop panic attacks. It was like being in a constant state of stage fright all the time, desperate for relief. And I noticed when they put the cattle in the squeeze chute to hold them for their vaccinations, sometimes the animals would just kind of relax. And so I tried getting in the squeeze chute and it calmed me down. Pressures is calming to the nervous system. And then I built a kind of a wood squeeze chute device I could get into. And um, what Mr. Carlock did to motivate motivate me is he said, well, if you want to find out why it relaxes you, then you need to um, study all the scientific stuff. Now that gave me a motivation to want to become a scientist and i went from being a goof around student to a good student now since i'm a visual thinker i was terrible at math algebra was absolutely hopeless but all my other subjects i did well in
0: what is a visual thinker
1: basically all of my thinking is in pictures like for example when i was talking about the squeeze chute and the ranch i started seeing pictures of the squeeze chute in the ranch and language narrates the pictures in my mind my mind works like Google for images. Put in a keyword, you get pictures. Basically, it's no picture, no thought. And that's given me insight into animals. Animals don't think in words. And to understand an animal, you have to get away from thinking in verbal language and thinking in pictures, thinking in smells, thinking in sounds, and putting these different sensory information into categories.
0: How do you determine the way that animals uh, think in sounds and smells and pictures?
1: Well, one thing is neuroscience, and I've studied a lot of neuroscience. And once you take away language, there's no other way that you can think. And there's been some very interesting studies done in a certain type of Alzheimer's patient called frontal temporal lobe dementia. And this Alzheimer's will go in there and destroy the uh, language parts of the brain. And as the language parts of the brain and the frontal cortex get destroyed, music and math, music and art talent, music and art talent, will come out of a person who's had no previous interest in either art or music. So it kind of shows that those more sensory-based things are buried underneath language. Now, of course, artists have a lot more visual thinking than than people that might be in a non-visual uh, you know, visual kind of field. Another indicator that animals think in pictures is, and in sensory-based impressions, is how they get fear memories. I knew a horse that was afraid of black hats. He'd been abused by somebody wearing a black hat. You couldn't get near this horse with a black hat. White hats were fine, but black cowboy hats, you couldn't get near him. There was another horse that was afraid of white saddle pads, naked white saddle pads. If the saddle was on top of the saddle pad, it was okay, because that's a different picture. Saddle on top of pad is a different picture than naked white saddle pad. Somebody had probably been sacking them out and flapping that in his face and scaring them with it.
0: Do you think that that has to do with why some dogs bark at people in uniform and other dogs don't?
1: Well, yes, because the dog associates the uniform with, you know, maybe something really bad like getting maced. I just talked to a lady the other day where the where the UPS man had maced her dog and. He hates that brown truck and he recognizes the truck, he recognizes the uniform, and he, that dog, doesn't like it. In
0: your book, Animals in Translation, you talk about curiosity and fear being core emotions in animals. Yes. Tell us about that.
1: Well, fear motivates an animal to get away from predators. And, uh, you know, high-strung animals with really nervous genetics are higher fear than animals with calmer genetics. But curiosity is also a drive because it gets animals out doing things. And the thing that's interesting is, is that the high-strung animal, like an Arab horse, if you were to place a flag out in the middle of the pasture, the Arab horse will walk up, walk up to it first. But if you shoved that flag suddenly into that horse's stall, the Arab's going to panic way before the workhorse is going to panic. You know, they, I call that the paradox of novelty. The animal that's got the high-strung, more fearful temperament is often the first animal to approach a novel object if they can approach it voluntarily on their own. But they're also the first animal to panic if you shove that novel object in their face suddenly and they cannot uh, get away from it. You know, novelty, new things are both scary and attractive.
0: So when you say a high-strung animal, you mean an animal that has uh, been bred in a certain way yes. to achieve certain benefits, and this might be an, an unanticipated consequence?
1: Well, yes, and, and you take a Border Collie dog, is going to startle more easily and get scared more easily than a Rottweiler. I mean, a Rottweiler's not, you has know, been bred to be a guard dog, and one of the things you're going to breed a guard dog to do is be low fear.
0: And also calm.
1: Yeah, but the, but the Border Collie is very aware of every little thing around in the environment. Um, the high-strung animal is often uh, more aware of uh, what's going on in the environment, and some, a lot of people say that they're more intelligent. I don't have any way of proving that, but they they definitely will notice little things that the calmer animal may not notice.
0: So when we consider animal thinking and how animals perceive their world and and respond to it, How would you define that? How would you explain that to us?
1: Well, it's going to be all in sensory-based information. Um, You know, dogs are very sensitive to tone of voice. I mean, they can tell whether you're angry or happy just by the way that you talk to them. These fear memories that I told you about, you can get touch fear memories, where let's say a horse was abused with a jointed bit, and you can't ride him with a bit, snaffle bit that's jointed. But if you put a bit in his mouth that's a solid one-piece bit, he's going to be just fine because it's a different feeling picture. The thing about these sensory-based memories is they're very specific. A jointed bit feels different than a one-piece bit. And I know three or four people where they had a horse that they just couldn't ride at all, and they changed the bit and got rid of the feared thing, which was the feeling of the jointed bit, then the horse was fine. See, that's very specific. You know, it's much more specific than the, way, than the way humans think.
0: Would you anticipate that the horse would be able to see the jointed bit as it's brought to it?
1: Uh, usually the fear memory is in just one sensory modality. Uh, visual is the most common. And uh, he's probably not going to react too badly until he feels it, because that tends to be a touch, uh, a touch memory.
0: Well, I bring that up because you mention in your book about animals that uh, are able to see expressions or see certain patterns of behavior by the people who care for them and bring them things.
1: Well, and they know, you know, a lot of people say, oh, this dog's got, you know, ESP. or I think in most cases the dog is just very sensitive to little changes in behavior. Like, okay, he knows you're getting ready to go to the dog park even before you pick up the keys in the purse, because you're kind of rushing around the house and doing certain activities you do right before you go to the dog park. And he picks up on that. He's just noticing the details.
0: I've noticed that in my dog. When I get ready to go out to the woods, um, she's ready to go.
1: Well, because that's something that she really likes doing.
0: And she uh, knows when I put on those boots, that's where we're headed.
1: That's right, and um, I think a lot of dogs today need a lot more exercise, and there's an awful lot of animals today that aren't getting um, socialized with their own kind, and this has caused problems with fighting with dogs and uh, even horses fighting. I mean, you raise a horse in the backyard, and he never learns as a young colt how to socialize with other horses. He'll often be vicious towards other horses.
0: Well, there are a couple of questions there that I'd like to pursue, Uh, but first I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Professor Temple Grandin about her new book called Animals in Translation. Temple Grandin teaches at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, and is an autistic person who thinks in pictures, not in words, not in sentences. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Temple Grandin, in training dogs, are there ideas that you could recommend as to how to do it more successfully to socialize a dog in as many ways as would be appropriate?
1: Well, we need to get puppies socialized, but we also need to be socializing adolescent dogs and young adult dogs with mature dogs. And to get proper socialization for, like, inter-dog reaction, interaction they need to be doing it off-leash out in the dog park, because in the mind of the dog, when you loosen the dog park, that's like one category of behavior, and when you're on your owner's leash, that's another category of behavior, like maybe I have to guard my owner, but out in the dog park, I can just run around. It's also essential to socialize um, puppies and adolescent dogs to young children. Dogs need to be taught when they're young that you are nice to all little kids, and you can get into some potentially bad situations if you have a dog that's Never been socialized to little kids because, see, a little kid is much smaller than a big adult, and the dog may not realize that that's a person, too. He needs to learn that when he's really young. And you don't want to just uh, socialize him to your own kids. You want to train him that all little kids you are nice to. So you Uh need to take him around to daycare centers and other places like that when he's a puppy and when he's young so he learns that all little kids you are always nice.
0: So beyond taking them to daycare centers, are there other suggestions that you have? Cause obviously we're looking at a situation where a dog could seriously injure uh, a, a child, a baby.
1: Well, I'm suggesting taking puppies around to daycare centers, S- Let's socializing
0: on, them when they're little.
1: That's right, and and there's not going to be any safety issue then. And you know, you know, even when the Rottweiler is a puppy, he's not going to hurt anybody. And this is the time that we need to be. You know, training the puppy that, you know, these little people are people too. And even if you were using the Rottweiler as a guard dog, I'd still want to have it trained that all little kids you are nice to. And this needs to be done with puppies.
0: And how about horses? You were talking about socializing horses a moment ago.
1: Well, there's a lot of problems with stallions, being difficult to ride, difficult to handle. And a lot of this is caused by locking them up in a stall, and the young stallion doesn't get to interact with other mature horses and learn the give and take of social behavior. Because you can go out to the Bureau of Land Management pens, where they have Mustangs for adoption, and you can have a whole pen full of stallions, and they're not fighting. That's because they were... You know, they learned social rules, and they'll be like one stallion, he'll be the boss, and they don't try to depose him until he gets old and crotchety. Um, But horses that are reared by themselves often can't get along with other horses, and you get horrendous fights. I mean, when I was a child, all the dogs ran loose, and yes, there were downsides, dogs getting hit by cars, but there were very few problems with dog bites and very vicious dog fights where where a dog ends up in the veterinary clinic.
0: Let's talk about animals as specialists, as cognitive specialists. Um, You say that they probably are, and comparing animals and people with autism to normal people, you call the normal people generalists. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, there's been some brain research that shows that the normal brain tends to drop out detail. This is research by Dr. Nancy Minshew in Pittsburgh, And the autistic brain tends to hone in on the detail. Well, animals hone in on the detail. Uh, You probably have heard of autistic savant skills, skills in art, skills in memorizing the entire subway system, the entire city map system. Those are feats of great memory. You also get a similar situation in migratory birds. Like, for example, a Canada goose only has to be shown the route once, and then he knows the way. And he remembers a whole lot of different things, sites along the way, uh, uh, even smells and sounds along the way.
0: How do they absorb this? Is this something in their brain structure?
1: Well, you see, verbal language I think really reduces the capacity of the brain for memory. Uh, one of the things I have, uh, you know, for visual thinking, I got a tremendous, uh, you know, internet of websites in my head of the images that I've downloaded, you know, for, for the past fifty-eight years. You know, when I was younger, I didn't have as much, you know, as many different images. But this sensory-based memory, there's just tremendous data storage in the brain.
0: How can a person who is not autistic draw on the sensory-based memory that we all have?
1: Well, one of the things is sometimes I find my best design ideas come when I'm drifting off to sleep. I get the clearest images. When I design equipment, I can actually test run it in my head, you know, I, you know, I think there's genetic differences in people on how much of a visual thinker you are. You know, if a 10, on a scale of 1 to 10, and a 10 was a super, super visual thinker that can do full motion video in their head, and the 1 was no visual thinking at all, and there are some people that are that way. If I say church steeple to them, there's no image there at all. Most people get kind of a vague, generalized one. But then if I say to them, shut your eyes and think about specific churches, they can then think about some specific churches, you know, where I only have specific ones. You know, so I think a person, people can work on, you know, being a better visualizer. But I don't think you're going to take a person who's, who's an extremely poor visualizer and make them into a 10. You might be able to raise them up to a scale of 4.
0: In terms of uh, language-based thinking... Um... Does that uh, interfere or affect your ability to read?
1: No. When I read, I just translate the uh, book into a movie. And if I'm reading a science fiction book with a lot of description, I can you know, see the planet or whatever it is or the rocket ship or whatever they're describing like a movie.
0: I do that, too. And uh, I've never considered myself to be autistic. Uh, Sitting here talking with you by phone in my studio and you in your office, I have this image of what you look like based on the book and what uh, I've seen other professors' offices to look like.
1: Yeah, kind of messy. That's what mine is. You know, visual thinking is a continuum, and there's a lot of non-autistic people that are visual thinkers. Also, a lot of people that are dyslexic and have other learning problems are really good visual thinkers, often also really uh, good with animals. It's a continuum, and I'm just on the extreme end of the visual thinking continuum.
0: Well, let's go back to the topic of your book, Animals in Translation, and the way people who are more autistic than not are good with animals.
1: Well, some of the nonverbal people with autism really get along with animals, and it's very variable. There are some that get along with them just great and others that don't, and the ones that don't, it's usually due to sensory sensitivities. Um, people with autism often have problems with loud noise hurting the ears, so if the dog barks, that hurts their ears. But then there's a whole number of um, nonverbal people with autism that have done just great therapeutic riding programs, and that's an activity that they just love to do.
0: How would a person um, help to identify someone, either themselves or their children or family members, who they suspect may be autistic?
1: Well, it's a continuum. It goes all the way from a brilliant scientist that's kind of aloof and not very social and eccentric down to purple that people that remain nonverbal and will have to live in a supervised situation for the rest of their life. Um there's a milder version of autism called Asperger's, where there's no obvious speech delay. And a lot of engineers and highly technical people are a mild Asperger's. We wouldn't have any technology if you didn't have some autistic and Asperger traits. Because after all, the really social people wouldn't have even have invented the first stone spear. The social people back in the caveman days would have been sitting around the fire yacking while some Asperger person was back there chipping out the stone spear and inventing it.
0: Does that take us to the connection between uh, music and language?
1: Yes, and there's um, I think animals use a lot of musical things. I mean, there are some people that are really into language that say, well, yeah, music doesn't really do anything for humans. But music has to have been important because the brain has got five different circuits just for different things in music, rhythm, tone, uh, uh, and if it was not important, why would you have so many brain circuits? And there's been some interesting work done on prairie dogs up in Flagstaff, Arizona, and um, they seem to have have calls that are kind of musical-like that have an adjective-like function, a verb-like function, and a noun-like function to describe different predators that are attacking the colony. They have a basic call for coyote. But then they can describe the particular coyote is either one that runs from hole to hole or one that just sits at one hole and waits for a prairie dog to come out. And then the verb-like function is the speed of the call, kind of the urgency of it.
0: You also mention in your description of prairie dogs the fact that different colonies or groups of prairie dogs have different forms of communication of the examples that you just gave.
1: You know, they kind of develop their own local dialects. I mean, that's similar to different, uh, you know, colonies of, uh, of chimpanzees and, you know, in terms of tool making. I mean, you'll have one group that might be getting uh, ants out of the uh, ant hill with a stick by sticking it in as a tool and others that didn't learn that.
0: And how do we um, define or characterize their learning? Is that uh, trial and error?
1: Well, some, sometimes it's trial and error, but sometimes there's some real problem solving. There's been some interesting research done with crows that was published in um, the journal Science, where crows were given um, bent paper clips wires to um, snag a little bucket out of a tube, and this little bucket had food in it. And then they then after the crow learned how to use the hook to get the um, the food out, then they took the the hooks away and just gave the crow a straight wire. And, of course, the crow got very frustrated sticking that in there, couldn't get the bucket out. Then one day the crow um, sticks the, uh, the wire into a crack in the table and bends it and makes a hook. That's true thinking. That's solving a problem under new conditions.
0: Which is not trial and error.
1: No, that's not trial and error.
0: That's taking what you have learned and applying it to a new situation. That's right. In the description of yourself... Um, you uh, are characterized as someone who would find the basic principles of a situation or of a problem, uh, as opposed to looking at the facts. Uh, an example that I remember is uh, if the animals fall down in the slaughterhouse, there's a problem with the floor.
1: Well, there would be a problem with the floor, or there could be a problem with Rough handling and excessive use of electric prods and getting the cattle all excited—it could be either thing. And in the scoring system that I, you know, designed for slaughter plants, uh, instead of telling them how to build floors, you measure whether or not the or measure whether or not the cattle fall down. And if more than one percent fall down, they fail the audit. It's just that simple. And that system has been used very successfully by McDonald's, Wendy's, and Burger King. And now the really good plants, it's way less than one in a hundred that falls down. It's one in a thousand that falls down.
0: So when you um, go about finding the basic principle, is that a formula that you apply?
1: No, it's what basically, you see, normal people get a hypothesis or a general principle, and then they shove all the little details into it. That's called top-down thinking. My thinking's bottoms up. It's like putting together a jigsaw puzzle. I collect lots of little details, and it's sort of like if someone gave you a jigsaw puzzle just in a shopping bag and the box was long since lost, you'd have no idea what the picture on the puzzle was. You start to put it together, and maybe you get 25% of the puzzle put together, and then I'm going to go, oh, it has a picture of a horse on it. That's the way I think, kind of piece things together until I, I see I can put just enough together to figure out what the solution is.
0: Well, Temple Grandin, author of Animals in Translation, I want to thank you for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately.
1: Well, I read a book by Franz de Waal called Our Inner Ape. I thought it was extremely interesting. It compared and contrasted the behavior of the chimpanzee, which in some cases can get quite warlike, to the very gentle bonable one that's always uh, making love, not war, all the time. And and describing how some of the um, chimp behavior is, you know, some of the fighting and things like this was similar to human behavior. And, you know, maybe we are sort of, you know, our behavior may be sort of in between the bonobo and the chimp. I mean, it had a whole lot of really good insights um, and some scary insights. Um, uh, they described one incident where um, uh, chimps that had grown up together, this sounds like warfare people, had grown up together, um, finally grew into a really big colony, and then drifted apart into two colonies. And then they got in a war and uh, were fighting each other, and, and was one chimpanzee like, tortured an old grandpa chimp you know that he used to know. That sounds a little bit like some of the things that people do, where the whole thing was, uh, happened over in Serbia, where you had next-door neighbors uh, killing each other. It's a very, very interesting book, and I think it will give you a lot of insights into some of our own behavior.
0: Well, Temple Grandin, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me.
0: Professor Temple Grandin teaches animal science at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado. She's the author of Animals in Translation, Using the Mysteries of Autism to Decode Animal Behavior. The book she recommended in 2006 is Our Inner Ape by Franz De Waal. This program was recorded in March, 2006. There are now over 630 archive editions on Radio Curious. That's RadioCurious.org. They're free for you to enjoy, download, and share as you wish. We appreciate your cards, letters, and ideas about our programming and look forward to hearing from you. 280 North Oak, Ukiah, California, 95482-707-462-6541. Angie boyles Ascom is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.